funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. This is the Silver Screen Video with your host, Jonathan Jacob. That was a weird way to start. You know, I don't like, you know, we we got away from the ladies and gentlemen, and then we got back to the ladies and gentlemen, and I really hate it. Listen, I'm going to tell you something, and then and then uh, it's just funny. I, I read this earlier, and it's fucking great, because it, it, um, it really lines up with a movie that I watched that I was going to bring up, how fucking cool it was, because we both love it, but... This actually gives me a reason to bring it up. So uh, Oliver Stone commented on John Wick 4. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read you everything he said because it's worth it. It's not very long. He says, I saw John Wick 4 on a plane. Talk about volume. I think the film is disgusting beyond belief. Disgusting. I don't <laughs> know what people are thinking. Maybe I was watching G.I. Joe when I was a kid. But Keanu Reeves kills, what, three or four hundred people in the fucking movie? And as a combat veteran, I've got to tell you, not one of them is believable. I realize <laughs> it's a movie, but it's become a video game more than a movie. Um, there's more, but it's not nearly as fun as that. That's so good. Dude, I love the fact that we have Oliver Stone just fucking spouting off on, on Facebook, man. It really is really awesome. Or not Facebook. Well, I, Where was that at? It was when he was accepting an award, I believe. I think he just got okay. the... Um, I think he just got some kind of a lifetime achievement award. Yeah. Mm. But here's the deal. Like, dude, I like Oliver Stone. I love some of his movies and I hate some of his movies, but that's why I like him as a director. But it's like, Oliver, were you doing too much cocaine in the eighties to remember what was happening? Because let me tell you, I just rewatched a great little movie called commando. And when Arnold invades that village as a one-man wrecking crew there's like 45 people shooting at him not one of them hit him and he just turns around with this machine gun and he guns down like 40 people now mind you i watched that well before i read what oliver stone said but it just it just hit me it's like oliver what the fuck like how many movies i mean we made a best action movies of the 80s episode how many movies can we name that were over the top and beautiful? He's acting like this is a new thing. Of course, John Wick's over the top. Like, right. Like it's not. Yeah, no, it's, I will say though, I haven't seen John Wick four, but I will say the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The, 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 I guess the amount of the killing has ratcheted up in the CGI era. You know what I mean? Where it's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And, it's, you know, so not to play devil's advocate, because, like, I'm sure I'm going to watch John Four, John Wick 4 and absolutely love it. But, like, I do think, like, someone, like, I can see Oliver Stone watching, like, the kind of, like, CGI mayhem in, like, a movie and just being, and his, like, his coke, like, coke-addled brain just, like, really not being able to process it, you know? Like, <laughs> like I think that might be, you know, the case with our buddy Oliver. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not getting, like, I'm not like, I love John Wick four. I've seen it three times, but I'm also going to tell you, yeah, it's a little long and yeah, it runs together a little bit, but they like Chad Stahelski wanted to make his movie and the studio let him. So we get a two hour and a 50 minute gun filled 
bordering, if not all the way in cartoon, but it looks really cool and it looks really stylish and the colors are beautiful. And the reason I'm surprised Oliver had that reaction or Mr. Stone, if you will, is because the movie's really well made. Like mm. I've listened to Stahelski so many times in interviews talk about his love of colors and 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 what he does in these movies. And too long, yes, over the top, yes, but they're still they're real movies. We're not talking about a, a CGI filled Fast and the Furious or Marvel movie. So I think that's where he should have been a little. He kind of tried to combine a movie like John uh, Wick into like a Fast X movie, and they are not the same at all. Um, well, just just the irony of Oliver Stone calling something over the top is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> hey, I'm a big fan of uh, Natural Born Killers. That movie's very subtle. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, <laughs> that's a really good point. This coming from the guy who made Natural Born Killers. Oh, uh, that's that's good. Um, but either way, about- I do. I, 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 John Wick was. It is too long. But watching Commando, the re, the whole reason I wanted to bring it up, watching Commando, it's like, okay, this is crazy and over the top, and I love it. It's also ninety five minutes. Mm-hmm. Like that's the big thing. John Wick, the first John Wick was like an hour and forty minutes, I think. And as they got bigger, they got significantly longer. Now I'm okay with going bigger, and I'm okay with stunt work and all the crazy shit. But if I'm not looking at it from my perspective, clearly I would be like, guys, let's let's make this let's see if we can get this closer to two fucking hours over here. Like, I mean, the link thing has become a real problem, hasn't it? I mean, like, I don't know if it's the, you know, like I'm not going to a movie in a theater unless it's, you know, three hours long or two and a half hours long or if it's maybe a, um, a product of the streaming, you know, situation. But like the days of the 90 minute genre movie are fucking over. Like all of these movies are just at least two twenty. I feel like now, you know? No, I, no, I agree. Which is funny because it used to be, I'm going to go see short movies in theaters because the long ones, I want to be able to pause it and go get snacks or anything. But sure. now it seems like these Marvel movies it's like no, like I, you're you're selling out the theater when your movie's two hours and forty five minutes. Yeah, it's, it's like I want to get my money's worth, you know. Um, speaking of genre movies that don't exist anymore, another movie I rewatched I really wanted to bring up to you because I don't know when the last time you rewatched it is, but you should revisit it. Uh, mm-hmm. I watched Mission Impossible from nineteen ninety six, directed by Brian De Palma. The very first one. I have not seen it in a while. Let me tell you this. I have not seen Mission Impossible 1 since 1996. So Really? Wow. Yeah, I was really excited to revisit it. And I, I, because I, I'm rewatching all the Mission Impossibles to get ready for the new one. So the first one I was a little hazy on. I didn't remember John Voight was in it. I didn't remember Vanessa Redgrave was in it. Um, so I'm watching it. And Brian De Palma fucking killed that movie. Like, hmm. it, it, it's not the most exciting Mission Impossible by any means. But outside of action-directed scenes, in terms of person-to-person scenes, it's the best directed of all the Mission Impossible movies. I will die on that hmm. hill. Okay. No, I like that take. I mean, De Palma is, I mean, 
I mean, depending on how you feel about John Woo, I mean, De Palma is clearly the best director to make a Mission Impossible movie, right? I mean, I don't even think it's close. Well, it's funny you say that. I wasn't going to bring this up, but since you did, I watched Mission Impossible 2, directed by the great John Woo, and that movie is cheesy as fuck, and it doesn't work on a lot of levels. Um, Mm. They got away from that style of action, though. I think they realized that John Woo's style wasn't going to work, but what's funny is they bring in Abrams, and then they realize his style isn't going to work either. That's why they didn't really hit their stride until 4, 5, and 6, and soon to be 7 and 8. Um, right. I would even say, I mean, Brad, the Brad Bird directed Ghost Protocol is maybe the beginning of kind of the what we now think of as the modern Mission Impossible movies. But I think. Oh, absolutely. Really, but I, but I think it even really kicks into higher gear with like five, you know, like once five came out, it was like, God damn, we're really cooking. They're just going to keep making these, aren't they? Like you go back to like one, two and three and it's like these are completely different movies, you know. Yeah, and and also like Ghost Protocol is still my favorite one. Like I am I am a hardcore Mission Impossible fan. I love every one of them. I think that it's probably the greatest action franchise in the history of of movies. I don't think there's another series that comes close. Maybe John Wick, but I don't put something and this may, you know, dear listener, feel free to chime in if you would like. I don't put like a Fast and the Furious in the same category as a Mission Impossible. So I don't even think oh, that no. series is in the running for best action series because it just looks so bad. Like it's gotten significantly worse over the last three movies, like laughably worse. Um, it's funny you say that because so. I'm actually three movies behind. I haven't seen, I haven't seen the Fast and the Furious movies since Paul Walker died. Um, so I mean, I'm, dude, uh, fa- I'm Fast Five, you you don't get better than Fast Five, you know. Mm. Um, with the introduction of The Rock. Like, in my opinion, I think most people feel like that's the best one of the series. And if they had stuck with that tone, it could have been fun. But, you know, I don't want to get into a whole thing, but I went and saw Fast X, and Vin Diesel's ego is single-handedly responsible for destroying that movie. Like, (laughs) this motherfucker gave one of the worst performances I've ever seen. And I really don't like to openly, like, bash people in Hollywood because it's like, they're just doing their fucking job. Who am I on a podcast? But... He thinks he's going to get nominated for an Oscar. And I don't think right. he's joking when he says it. <laughs> so I, I, mean, I don't know what, but it's not just him either. I saw Michelle Williams, not Michelle Williams. What's her name? Um, Michelle Rodriguez. Michelle Rodriguez. I saw a clip of her talking about how the movie was like Academy Award worthy. And it's like, I, like who told them, who, who's telling them this shit? You know what I mean? Maybe it, maybe it does all come from Diesel, but like, it, it, it's just wild man it's like i don't know like there's a bunch of them who are like coming out and like yeah this isn't like that marvel shit and it's like no it's exactly like that marvel shit you guys have basically become like marvel but not you know what i mean like you you've been so oh, absolutely by the marvel shit it's like i don't know the, the whole narrative around the movie and the pr is just like what are you guys talking about you guys are talking about a different movie you know yeah, it, it's dude, it's honestly mind blowing. And I'll say this as a because I, you know, we don't have to talk about Fast X for a long time, but uh, Jason Momoa is apparently getting all this praise for his villain that seems like it was inspired like by the Joker, kind of. Um, mm. It's it's my least favorite. Momoa is a cool, fun guy. He made Aquaman fun, which is like the lamest superhero in existence. Right. But um, he's awful in this movie. 
He's just absolutely fucking terrible. He's so oh, wait, hammy. so you saw Fast X? I didn't know you yeah, saw it. Yeah, I went it. and saw it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I thought I'd text you about it because I told you about Vin Diesel. But um, some, of, some of Diesel's line deliveries laid down with that Lifetime music is fucking insane. It almost feels <laughs> like I'm in a, another dimension. <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. I can't wait to see it now, actually. Um. <laughs> well, dude, I'll tell you this is this is the next to last one because this and Mission Impossible is doing the same thing. Mission Impossible has Dead Reckoning Part One and Dead Reckoning Part Two comes out next year, and that wraps up Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible's. This one we, did Fast do we, X. Do we believe that though for either of these? Um, I do with Fast and the Furious because Fast X underperformed at the box office, so. Hmm. I think uh, the love is waning. Mission Impossible is hard to say because I've never thought Mission Impossible was all that big of a moneymaker. Like it makes its money, but it's nothing compared to Marvel. Marvel uh, makes a movie for 200 million, but then it has a 1.2 billion return on it. Right. Yeah. Like it's not, yeah. Mission Impossible, not even in the same ballpark. Yeah. So I'm just glad they keep making Mission Impossibles because Tom Cruise risking his life is something I will never not watch. But, um, mm-hmm. Either way, the the ending of the uh, of Fast X, which I clearly won't spoil for you or the listener, because it is a it's a real whammy. Um, it's just so fucking stupid. Like <laughs> I just <laughs> I was just watching it by myself in the theater in, in, in Seattle, and I'm just like, what? I was like, I kind of wanted to look around the theater, be like, are you guys you guys seeing this? Like, what <laughs> what do y'all think? Like just to kind of see if I'm maybe in maybe in the wrong mindset. I don't know. I kind of want to know what it is, but no, we shouldn't we shouldn't spoil it because I'm sure people will want to see it. I mean, I want to see. Oh it, yeah, honestly. no, it's it's a huge spoiler, so I will I won't spoil it. But uh, anyway, going back original Mission Impossible one, don't sleep on it. Like there are some fucking scenes that De Palma directs the shit out of, specifically when Ethan is in the diner after his after his team has been betrayed. Dude, yeah, that I remember scene, that scene. Yeah. Oh man, the way De Palma frames the shot, the way he holds the camera, like even the action had something just a bit poetic to it. I don't know. And this is coming from a person I am not a huge De Palma fan. I like him. He's a, he's a very talented director, but man, this movie was so well directed. I was just really blown away by that. Yeah, it's also it's also less of an action movie, I think, and more of kind of a. Oh, it's a spy uh, thriller. It's not, it is yeah. not anything close to action. Yeah. Right. It, it definitely didn't indicate, has no indication at all of the, the, the movies to come. In fact, I mean, it has no indication of what the, even the second movie is, you know. Um, it gave us no indication that Tom Cruise would be flying off of a motorcycle while another man flies off of a motorcycle and they meet in midair. Oh, man. John Woo, boy, John Woo never translated to America, did he? I mean, I, I like some of the John Woo American movies, but they, they never really, really hit home, did they? The only one that I would go to bat for and be like, no, this is legitimately amazing and I will die on this hill is Face Off. Yeah, Face Off. I, I mean, yeah, that's true. But like, also part of me is just like, how good is it? You know, uh, it's a masterpiece. That's how good it is. So <laughs> um, I'm looking hard target, broken arrow, wind talkers. Paycheck is pretty good. Paycheck wasn't bad. Wind talkers was fucking, it, it was interesting. We'll say that. 
Yeah, I don't think I'll be watching Wind Talkers anytime soon. But then you have uh what was that fuck did he make that? I can't remember if he directed that movie. No, I don't think he did. Never mind. Um anyway, yeah, dude, I don't know. I just really love I really love Face Off, but um yeah, Mission Impossible 2, some slow-mos of Tom Cruise. Uh I love obviously he incorporated some birds. Uh yeah. Some just doves. We we love some doves, folks. That's the thing. He used doves in Phase Off, but then in Mission Impossible 2, he was like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna use pigeons. <laughs> so, it's like that'll really throw people off what I'm doing. Uh, they're they're really pigeons in Mission Impossible 2? A bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there's there's one scene where a pigeon gives Ethan away. Like there's it's like kind of comedic where the pigeon like is looking around. And Tom Cruise is trying to hide, and then the pigeon does the noise they make, and then the villain <laughs> finds it. I had no idea pigeons played such a big role in Mission Impossible too. I've got to rewatch. Yeah, it. yeah, they really, uh, they really took over in the third act. Um, <laughs> it would have really been great if, like, for no, for like, for no reason, the pigeons accidentally brought down the chopper or something. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> Dude, I hope they bring the pigeons back in Dead Reckoning. You know, just as kind of a tribute to the to the series. That would be great. Like like Rebecca Ferguson and Cruz is trying to have this like conversation about how bad things are and a pigeon just enters the frame. Right. And like lands on Cruz's shoulder or something. He goes, What is hey, it? Hey power. Remember me? <laughs> <laughs> Remember me, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, that's um, great. Anyway, uh what what have you been watching? Do you watch anything interesting? Because I, I have like I, I'm I have such a long list, I'm not gonna bore you guys with all of it. Honestly, no, I haven't been watching that much lately. Um, I've been basketball's uh, over. What have you been doing? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I uh, I've been blowing through Seinfeld because I got a Netflix subscription because like there was some stuff piling up on Netflix that I've been meaning to watch, right? Like, and then I realized that I don't want to watch any of it. I just want to watch Seinfeld, and so uh, yeah, I just been rolling through classic Seinfeld episodes, and it's been great because you know, like now that the now that the the streaming services are so segmented, it's like you basically have to get like a month, you know, a month subscription to like Peacock to rewatch The Office or, you know, Netflix to rewatch Seinfeld, you know, whereas previously, like, I feel like they were just all on Netflix, you know. Um, but no, it's been a good time. I've been watching old Seinfeld episodes, just laughing my ass off. It's been uh, it's been a great time. I don't I can't watch Seinfeld. Now it's just like I'd rather just go watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. I just don't. I tried rewatching mm. all the Seinfelds, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't get into it. Well, see, I actually believe it or not, I rewatched all, or I watched all of. I watched it when it was on, you know, on pre on, uh, yeah, and on reruns on TBS and stuff and um, that kind of thing. But I, my parents bought me in the early days of the TV on DVD. They bought me the entire series of Seinfeld. And so I watched it on DVD um, back in the day. So like, I know the episodes backward and forward. So it's almost kind of like a nostalgia exercise for me at this point, you know, like, Oh yeah. Remember that episode? You know, like it's uh, it's kind of like the office at this point, but yeah, it's been a good time. No, I get that. I, uh, I've, I've found all kind of old shows that I love that are all streaming on YouTube, like the rifleman, and uh, a lot of those old comedies, the Dick Van Dyke show. So like, yeah, it's definitely like a nostalgia thing because I watched all that shit on TV land when I was a kid. Yeah, Dick Van Dyke show. I did, yeah, Nick at Night and TV land. Yeah, dude, I used to watch Dick Van Dyke show 
all the time. I, I watched that show so much that I think it was on Netflix, like in the early days of, of instant watch back when it was called instant watch. And I remember like, I feel like, like there was tons of old TV shows on there back in the day, but yeah, I remember watching Dick Van Dyke and I was like, I've seen all these episodes. Like, this is wild. I think I just saw all of them as a kid, you know? Yeah, man. Like that, Mary Tyler Moore. I used to watch all those shows. Andy Griffith funny. show. Oh yeah. But it's funny you mentioned Netflix because I was watching Black Mirror. The new season just came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've decided to get rid of Netflix. It canceled my. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Well, it's, it's funny. I think we both had the same experience because I I got it because I was like, because Seinfeld was in the back of my head, but I was like, I know there's some other stuff that has been coming out on Netflix that I haven't seen, and you know I never saw Queen's Gambit or Squid Game, and I was like, I'm gonna give, you know, I'm in the mood for you know another TV show. Um, and dude, I was just looking through some of their offerings and like. I watched pilot episodes of a few stuff and I was just like, I don't want to watch any of this shit. Like this shit sucks. Like I watched the first couple episodes of Queens Gambit and I was like, I got nothing here. You know, like, I don't know, man. I, it's crazy to say that, especially like from the way that Netflix used to be where like, like we said earlier, like there used to be just like every TV show ever was on there, but now it's just like, dude, I don't, what is even on here? What's the, at least HBO, you have like specific shows that you want to rewatch or whatever, but like Netflix just like has nothing. I feel like at this point. No, I mean, I have a couple of shows that I watch that they make like Peaky Blinders being one of them, but I already watched the newest season. So I'll just get it when the movie comes out. Like I'm just, that's how I'm going to do it. I'll just wait and just get it for a month. Do the $10 plan, get the one screen thing and watch it. But yeah, fuck Netflix. It's also the most expensive one. Like, yeah, if, if you and, if you want to watch something in 4K, you got to pay twenty dollars a month. Like, that's crazy. Well, I'll tell you this: going back to HBO Max, which I guess is just Max.com. That's fucking stupid, but we'll avoid talking about that. <laughs> you know what I've been watching the hell out of? Uh, this this is this is very exciting for you and the listeners to hear. But I'll tell you anyway: I've been watching Chopped like a motherfucker. I think I've watched like fifteen episodes since Max came out. Oh, okay. Chopped. Dude, chopped it's, it's chopped is so show, good. Right? It's a cooking show. It's great. That's why that's why I'm saying this. Like, watch it if you have it, people. I promise you it's not just for hotels and plane rides. It's legitimately fun. Okay. This is good to know because I love a good reality show, man. I watched uh I also had a Paramount Plus subscription for some reason for like a month. And I uh, I caught up on Survivor and I was like, man, what are like I mean, I, I don't even really recommend Survivor because you just you kind of gotta be attuned to it to really enjoy it but like i was like man i love a good reality show man just just trashy reality show fun i'm gonna need you to pump the fucking brakes and stop besmirching my good name chopped is not a reality show oh it's not i thought it was a cooking show i thought it was like top chef or something it is four chefs that compete against each other and then there's a a winner okay calm down that's a reality show no you comparing that to survivor is no that's a slap in the face how's it a slap in the face I don't watch reality TV outside of... I got, I got news for you. You do. You watch Ink the show Master called Chop. Biggest Loser and Pawn Stars. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do watch a few reality shows. Yeah, you're just a little fucking snob. But hey, I love Pawn I just looked Stars. it up. Chopped. Chopped. An American reality TV show that came out in 2009. Okay, whatever, man. You never know what somebody's <laughs> going to come in to sell on Pawn Stars. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I don't watch reality TV, except for these five. That's true. 
anyway, so yeah, that's it. I watched a lot more shit, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, I watch a lot when I travel and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's weird that you've been watching Seinfeld. I don't, I don't. It, it is weird. It is. I can't lie to you. It's weird that I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's Wednesday evening. Time to watch like eight episodes of Seinfeld. Hey, I actually can't judge you. Cause like for me, I'm thinking, Hey, it's Wednesday evening. I'm going to watch two episodes of chopped. So yeah. Hey, anyway. what are you going to do, man? It's, you know, basketball's off. Like, uh, you know, the, I'm still mourning the loss of the NBA season. So like, it's, you know, it's it's like the weird in between times right now. So you know, you can really watch whatever you want. Well, dear listener, this week we are covering two movies that uh, my co-host picked uh, from what is it, Max Ophels. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, let's first before we get into the movies, let's tell it. Tell us why you picked it. I'm assuming, like, I I already know you're a fan of his. Because you've made that clear through text, but um, why these two movies are these is two most well known movies? You can tell us what the movies are. You know, give us the rundown. Okay, so Max Ophuls is a really interesting director, and I'm actually kind of shocked we haven't done an episode on him before now because I really think uh, a lot of him, and um, yeah, he is a uh, he's German. He was born in Germany. He was born Maximilian Oppenheimer. Uh, so, yeah, changed it to Ophels. And then when he came to uh, America... Maximilian is a great name. Oh, such a great name. Uh, and then he changed it to Opals whenever he was uh, in America because Louis B. Mayer thought that Ophels sounded too much like awful. And so people wouldn't want to go see his movies. Wow. Which is, uh, yeah, pretty funny. Um, but anyways... He kind of bummed around Europe for a while. Um, he made some movies. He started making movies in the 30s in Germany. Um, I think he made a couple in France, Netherlands, Italy. You know, he, he, he kind of was almost like an exile because, well, I don't know if you know your history, but in Germany, some things were going on in the 30s, let's say. Things uh, were pretty and- quiet, I thought. <laughs> well, they were very quiet for some people. <laughs> Um, so, so was he, so is he kind of like a Fritz Lang type? Like he would, he just kind of yes. had to leave. Yes. He's exactly like a Fritz Lang type. He, he left okay. and eventually, eventually, you know, Europe was obviously, you know, in war and, you know, so he came to America and made a few movies in America and, you know, he, he's made a lot of movies and a lot of them aren't available. Um, but his reputation rests on seven movies basically. Um, three that he made in the United States. Uh, one of them is going to be one that we're talking about today, Letter from an Unknown Woman. Uh, the other two that have kind of a cult uh, following is uh, two kind of lesser-known film noirs, one of them called Caught, one of them called The Reckless Moment. Um, and then the other four movies that his reputation rests on are the four movies that he made when he finally got to go back to France in 1950. Uh, these four movies have been released on the Criterion Collection and have these really beautiful covers, and they're all kind of the covers all look very similar, like a similar art style. Um, the movies are La Ronde from 1950, 1952's Le Plaisir, uh, which is a uh, like an anthology film. Uh, the one that we're going to be talking about today, uh, which is The Earrings of Madame Day, with uh, an ellipses after that. And then his last and final movie, Lola Montez, 
which he made in widescreen and in Technicolor, and it's just, uh, just it's a it's a it's a big one. That movie, it's very colorful and very, um, I don't know, almost experimental. Um, but the two that we're going to be talking about today is, like I said, Letter from an Unknown Woman, which is an American movie, Earrings of Madame Day, uh, from nineteen fifty three. Um, so yeah, these are probably his two most well-known movies. Um, Earrings of Madame Day is, is oft is seen as kind of maybe the peak of his art, whereas Letter from an Unknown Woman is almost kind of a early, like American dry run for the movies that he would go on to make in France. Um, so yeah, those are the two movies and, um, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't have any like overriding theme. I just picked his, his two, what most well-known movies. Um, and I, of course I happen to like both of them. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why I picked Max Ophels. And there's, there's a couple of things I want to address early on. One of them is he has a reputation for kind of like a Lubitsch directing these movies that have a very kind of old world European style, you know, glamour and you know his movies take place these two movies um take place in kind of early 20th century um europe uh one in vienna one in paris you know and i i think maybe he has a, a kind of a, a surface level reputation of you know bringing a kind of um european sophistication and glamour uh to America, and then of course, the earrings of Madame Day being, you know, a classical French movie. But I, I'm I'm going to contend, and I think that it is true that similar to, um, similar to his fellow uh, European immigre, uh, Douglas Sirk, I think there's a lot more going on to these movies, and I think specifically as it relates to the filmmaking and, um. Yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that for now. The, f- <clears throat> sorry, the filmmaking. Um, I think there's something really deep here and really true about the human condition that Ophuls is expressing cinema, cinema, cinematographically. Maybe um, that I think That's is a hard really, one to say. yeah, it's a hard one to say that I think is really important and really valuable. That is that is far deeper than just kind of the surface level melodrama of these two movies. So, um, I don't know. You want, you want to start talking about letter from an unknown woman? Um, maybe kind of what it's about and what, what some of your thoughts were. Yeah. Letter from an unknown woman came out in 1948. A pianist about to flee from a duel receives a letter from a woman. He cannot remember who may hold the key to his downfall. That is the IMDB synopsis. Look, uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to complain about a duel, but, Apparently he likes duels. We'll say that. Um, (laughs) Big feature in his movies. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get started, I'll say I was doing a little bit of research, not really research, just really reading who's in the movie. And I came across, uh, obviously the lead of this movie, Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine, uh, had a very busy 1948, uh, with, uh, with the movie she was in. I thought that was really interesting. Um, I, uh, uh, I guess maybe not, I guess maybe 1940, uh, well, she was in Rebecca, which is the main one I thought of, um, Mm. because I had, I had recently watched that and, uh, 
I don't know. I saw, I don't know when it, IMDb says 1940. So I don't know if it was the forties or if Rebecca was the release was delayed or something. I don't know. Apparently I just, I watched a really interesting video about uh, Fontaine and I just, the only reason Rebecca stuck out to me is because I've recently watched that on your recommendation, probably in the last six months and really enjoyed it. So um, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. She's also but, um, in, uh, she's also in Hitchcock's uh, suspicion, which is yeah. a really interesting Cary Grant movie that we've talked about recently. Right. Yeah. That's another, that's another solid, solid movie uh, that I really enjoyed, like especially Cary Grant's performance in that movie. Yeah, she in, in it's interesting in both those movies in Rebecca and Suspicion, she plays a you know, a, a kind of a woman who is uh well, I guess mistreated by men or or preyed upon by men or you know, in obvi- in Rebecca it's obviously um it's obviously um what's his name? Laurence Olivier's uh kind of neglect towards her as his new second wife and then um, obviously in, in, in suspicion, it's, you know, the murderer, Cary Grant, who's actually not a murderer just in debt. Apparently. I don't know. Hitchcock has a weird ending on that one. Um, I still think but... he's a murderer and I think he murdered her. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about, <laughs> I forgot about your theory there that <laughs> despite all evidence to the contrary, he actually was a murderer and he fucking killed hey, her at the end. Hey, we don't know what the evidence was, pal. You know, the movie ended, we can make our own conclusions. That, you know what? That's true. Um, (laughs) So what about this movie? You know, Letter from an Unknown Woman is um, basically the story of uh, it's early 20th century Vienna. And it's about, you know, this guy comes home and he's he's about to he's about to, you know, are you in an OFT? He's about to he's about to blow dodge and um, run away from this duel that he's got himself in when he receives a letter that is a flashback and tells the story of Joan Fontaine's character who Joan Fontaine basically discovers meets this guy uh, who is a concert pianist and falls in love with him and loves him so much and so hard and so fast that she ends up just ruining her and his life. (laughs) So, which is about it. Um, I don't know. What, what what are your thoughts on this? Because I, I mean, I think this is, I think this is a masterpiece, and I think there's there's a lot going on here that is kind of beneath the surface. Um, but on the surface, this looks like a traditional romantic melodrama. You know, woman's picture would be what they would call it back then. But I guess what we still call it now. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I'll tell you this. You know, to start off with, both of these movies are beautifully directed. I think just like the previously aforementioned uh, Fritz Lang, Ophuls was doing mm. some shit with the camera that was not really being done at the time. So uh, that that's really, there was just some really, especially the first five, 10 minutes. Actually, the intros to both of these movies are, are really right. good. Um, very very famous you, for his moving camera. Yeah, yeah, which I think, you know, back in the day, directors were really known for parking the camera. You know, because mm-hmm. there was limited technology, tight space. The cameras weren't very small. I mean, to this day, I can't get over that fucking crane shot from him and 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 with Fritz Lang. It's one of the greatest shots I've ever seen, which is right. crazy considering when it came out. So anyway, yeah, very active camera. 
just really like that, that, that over the shoulder shot and the opening of earrings is fantastic. But for these movies, I'll be honest with you, just like I told you off pod, I feel like there may be both of them. Cause these are, this is both first watches for me. Never seen either of them. Uh, they're a victim of circumstance for me because as longtime listeners of this podcast know, uh, depending on like my mood, it could really affect the way I view a movie. And I gotta be honest with you. I didn't enjoy either of these movies. It doesn't mean the movies are bad. I just, I didn't get a lot from them. I will admit, I, I mean, I, I agree with you for a letter from an unknown woman. There is obviously there's more going on. I think there's more to this movie than just being a melodramatic kind of uh romantic 1940s movie. I think it would be, I think it would be disingenuous of, of film watchers to write this off as such, which I do believe most of them don't. This is a highly regarded movie. Um, but in terms of in terms of the movie itself, I just I don't know, man. It didn't really click with me, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, there is there is two real um, I think two real levels here. I mean, the first surface level is that this is, you know, this is about a woman who is in love with this man who you know, he's a, he's a famous pianist and he's, um, uh, he's kind of an international playboy, you know, um, and she is so, uh, just besotted and in love with him. And we kind of get three eras of her life. We get her as a young girl, almost kind of like a sexual awakening. Um, I think she's 15 it is unconvincingly 15 Joan Fontaine, by the way. Um, but she uh it's kind of a sexual awakening that she has um and then we kind of get um i think when she's a little bit older she's like 5 years 5 or 6 years older and she's a model and we get these um incredible scenes of her basically having kind of um a a great a beautiful night with with this with this man she finally gets what she wants um, uh, and th- she gets pregnant and they have this beautiful romantic evening, you know, and then we get the uh, third section of the movie, which is 10 years later and she's now married to somebody else. And, um, she has the, you know, the son that's 10 years old and stuff. And, and, uh, I don't want to give any of the plot details away, but you know, things end, you know, tragically and, um, you know, those those are kind of the basic outlines of the plot, but what's missing from that bare description. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why at least I haven't proposed a Douglas Sirk episode is because his movies are very difficult to talk about. You almost kind of have to see them to really understand what's going on. Right. And I'll give you an example. Like, you know, there, there's a scene in the movie where they are in a train that's basically like a, it's kind of like a theme park ride or like a, like a fair ride and it's a fake train. And the, um, the scenery keeps changing, you know, like, like, it, like the scenery keeps changing outside the window of the fake train, um, you know, indicating that they're like taking a train through Venice or Switzerland or whatever. Right. And, this is this is just a kind of a thing that happens. This is just a uh, a setting to have um, a, a setting, right? Right? It's just a setting. Like, hey, why don't we set this here? 
you know, when these people fall in love and do this thing. But the setting is very, it's telling you a lot, right? It's telling you a lot. There's a lot about the fleeting nature of love. You know, there's an indication that uh, they're not in a real train. They're in kind of like a carnival ride. Is their love real? You know, we, we get the indication that maybe their love isn't real. Maybe it's fake, like this train ride, right? These are all cues and little moments that Ophels is hinting at us and making us, you know, we're seeing these people fall in love, but he's telling us through the movement of the camera, through the settings that, that the scenes take place in, he's telling us that this is not going to last, right? That something is wrong here. You know, there's a great, there's also a great scene where, uh, uh, she's, uh, talking to a young boy um, who she's being introduced into society, right? And the young boy is going to propose to her. That he's like a young soldier or whatever. And she's like, she lies to him and tells him she's already engaged. And her parents are like, what did you tell him that for? You know, um, but there's a great scene. Which where was actually get, a pretty funny scene. I don't know if it was supposed to be funny, but I thought it was funny. No, I, I think it's very funny. I think it's, and it's really an interesting moment because what happens is when they're introduced, they keep getting like cut off in the middle of the road by like a group of marching soldiers, you know, like it, it's really like people keep getting in their way. And it's like, if this was just a bland kind of regular, just Hollywood production of a melodrama, there wouldn't be little moments like that. There wouldn't be these little grace notes and these little, you know, Ophuls is telling us, he's telling us that this is that, that, that she, that this, this love affair is not going to work. It's awkward. Right. Whereas, whenever she meets the piano player finally, and they have their moment, there's no interruptions at all. The camera is, the camera is just gliding along. Like it is, you know, an ice skater or something, you know, like there's no interruptions. There's no awkwardness. There's no nothing. You know, these are, these are things that he's communicating. I mean, it's, it's literally the essence of film directing, right? Commuting to us, communicating to us things about the story, things about the characters, things about, the thematic uh, elements of the movie that isn't directly referenced in the plot. The actors aren't talking about it. You know, it's not a direct part of the plot, but he's communicating these things to us in a very complex and sophisticated way. Right. Um, Very similar to the way that Lubitsch, you know, opens his grand, beautiful, uh, you know, Venice tale of, you know, trouble in paradise with a guy emptying garbage off of a barge in Venice. Right. You know, the, the, yeah, this is pure filmmaking. Right. And and he's telling us things uh, that are kind of outside of the, the world of the movie. I think Fritz Lang did this as well. This is a, these, and it's no accident that a lot of these European immigrants who came over in world war II, a lot of them had their training in theater. Right. So this is, you know, this is an element of the theater as well, especially the pre-world war II European theater. Um, so there's a lot going on here, I guess, is what I'm saying. It, it, it takes well, a kind of, you, you have to understand what film directing is, and you have to understand visual language to understand what he's doing in these movies. Like, you, you can't just appreciate them on the surface level. Well, I shouldn't say that. You can appreciate them on the surface level if you just like movies like this, right? That's completely fine. But there is a deeper level where, when you look at the filmmaking and you look at what the camera is doing, look at the mise-en-scene, you know, as, as snobby as that sounds, when you look at that stuff, 
it, it opens up a whole new world and you're just like, oh my God, this is the work of a genius, you know? Um, sorry, I cut you off. What were we going to say? Well, I was going to say like, no, I, I 100% agree with you because the movie start this this isn't even like that subtle. The movie starts off with somewhat of a surreal tone. Like mm. honestly, the 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 comparison I would draw is I felt like at times it was kind of like a Boonwell movie. Like mm. it reminded me of like the exterminating angel, very surreal feeling, especially with with some of those scenes like you're talking about in the carriage and all that. Like um I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I, I'm assuming that was on purpose. I think that's what would set it apart from even a good romantic comedy or drama, like a Cary Grant one, like a His Girl Friday or, or something like the tone of this is completely, I clearly, I know it's not a uh, straight up comedy, but the tone of it in general to me is very dreamlike. No, no, you're a hundred percent right. I think there is, there, there is an irony here. There is a, there is a a dark irony here that underscores um, what is going on. In fact, I, I <laughs> the the moment where she is trying to, where they're trying to introduce herself, they're introducing her into society, right? And like, yeah, th- th- like they say, you know, hello, how are you? And it's very regimented and very kind of robotic, like because it's it's a ritual, you know. It's like. Hello, Mr. So-and-so. Hello, Mrs. So-and-so. And hello, is this your daughter? Oh, yes, this is our daughter. It's very regimented and very, you know, it's it's very planned. And this is how we're going to introduce our daughter into society, whatever, whatever. And, like, the whole scene is just completely cut off by this group of, like, you know, marching soldiers and stuff. And I said to myself, that is more subtle and funny than anything in Barry Lyndon. Right. And I'm, I know I don't want to bring up Kubrick cause whatever, but like, you know what I mean? Like Kubrick made a three hour movie. that was like, isn't this shit stupid? It's like, yeah, Ophels did that in like one scene. You know what I mean? He like, <laughs> he's telling you that like, this shit is stupid. Right. It, the, the, the pomp and the circumstance is really kind of dumb, you know, and, and pointless, you know? And I think, um, yeah, no, I think there is an irony there, and there is a surrealistic nature. I mean, there's a lot of very wordless scenes, you know, um, that are that are kind of surrealistic. And just to give you to to give what you were saying, like when you compare this to something like, um, say, uh, now Voyager um, is a really good one with Betty Davis. That Hamilton woman is another good example uh, with Vivian Lee. You know, there are very good conventional romantic melodramas that came out around this time in Hollywood in the 40s. Um, this is not one of them. This is a level deeper, right? This is there's something going on here that is that is that is a lot deeper and a lot more interesting, I think, um, than movies like that. Um, I want to um, if you don't if you have you got anything else on this movie, I want to I want to quote uh, our boy David Thompson on this, unless you got something else. Oh, no. Let's get to David Thompson. He says, because David Thompson's entry on Max Ophels, he just talks about Lola Montez for like five pages because he loves Lola Montez. Um, And then in the last paragraph, he goes, and look, I haven't even mentioned Letter from an Unknown Woman, which is only a perfect film. (laughs) (laughs) Which is only a perfect film and only less obvious because because it is a rehearsal for the greater tragedy of Madame Day which I think is a great 
it's a great observation. Letter from an Unknown Woman is literally like a dry run for for the kind of grand tragedy in, in earrings. Um, and then he says, but Letter from an Unknown Woman makes Joan Fontaine a youth, a romantic young woman, and then a victim. It employs the solemn handsomeness and self-regard of Louis Jordan to wonderful effect. That's who plays the concert pianist. Um, it makes a quite credible Vienna and Linz, and in its melodic variations on staircases, carriages, rooms, glances, and meetings, it is a film about forgetfulness and the inescapable rhyming of separate times. No one had more sympathy for love than Max Ophel's, but no one knew so well how lovers remain strangers. And I think that's a good segue into talking about earrings because, you know, Ophel's best work dealt with love, right? But didn't deal with it at all in a very uh, kind or positive manner, but in a very, very, very negative manner. Uh, and uh, I don't want to say it's cynical because I don't think it was cynical, but it's it's very, very ironic and very focused on the fact that human passions are often the source of our greatest misfortune as well. And I think well, that's... Um, I think it's, that's very deep, you know. It is. And two quick things to say before I say what uh, Earrings of uh, Madam Day is about. I love that final line from Thompson. That was fantastic. And uh, I mean, that whole thing was insightful. But the other thing is, it's funny you brought up Kubrick because I was going to wait until Earrings to talk about this. But, uh, dude, I'm sorry. You're going to give fucking Kubrick shit for being cold? Max Ophels is a cold motherfucker. Like, mm. Yeah, 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 I, I, I 100% think that he is like, I'm not going to say he can be cynical at times with what he's doing, but he also seems very cold and very distant. That's that's something I, I brought away from these two movies. Clearly, I've only seen two of his films, but I will say, though, I will say, though, I don't and I'm not, I'm not sure distant is the right word or and I don't mean to nitpick, you know, what you're saying, because I, I understand the overall what you're saying like like right like there is a very um uh there is a very like let me i'm just kind of looking through here let me look at um to talk of Ophel's then was to meet ignorance or bland assertions that he was a frivolous romantic director concerned with decoration rather than content a stylist for style's sake a chronic camera fidget and thompson's obviously saying that is a very shallow reading of of Ophuls, right? Did you just say that he is just this this romantic director who's very frivolous and making movies about you know rich people or whatever? And it's like no, 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 no. Something is going on here. And he says um, he is frivolous only if it is frivolous to be obsessed by the gap between the ideal and the reality of love. Isn't that a great? Isn't that a great quote? Like Thompson yeah, has such a way of boiling this shit down to its essence. He's obsessed by the gap between the ideal and the reality of love. And I think that is where that, that darkness comes in that you're talking about the, I don't want to call it cynicism because it's not cynicism. He he revels in the romance at certain points, right? Like there, the scenes between Joan Fontaine and the pianist, are they're genuine, right? He's not making fun of them in those scenes. Th those are, there's a, there's a genuine connection there. There's a genuine love. And there's also a genuine 
pleasure in seeing Joan Fontaine gets get what she wants, even if it's very briefly. You know, so it's not cynicism, but it's it's almost kind of like a a, a, a realism or a or a or a, an acknowledged irony that yes, this is going very well right now, and it may be beautiful, but it, brother, it is short lived, and that is that is a very mature outlook and point of view on on the world i think you know yeah but also it it feels um kind of almost like it's it's so insightful because like not to be negative but that really is how most love is so it's just really interesting to see him kind of explore that dare i say shakespearean Um, right right but i will say just real quick i wish i could be half as articulate as uh, as fucking Dave Thompson. That dude just that dude nails it. Even if he's wrong, even if I don't agree with him, I still love to hear it. I just love to to hear what he has to say. Yeah, he um, puts he just puts he just boils it down to its essence to where it's like, oh my god, that's I, I could write for I could write for ten pages. I would never say you know I would never I would never luck upon that that phrase that just describes Max Ophel's perfect perfectly. You know. Hey, and we love you at the Silver Screen video, David. But you were way off with uh, Julian Salinko boating. That's who and are there. So, um, <laughs> well, I'm not saying that. I'm not claiming that. Um, uh, so, so let's get into earrings. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Go for uh, earrings. The the brief, uh, you know, the the movie is. I feel a little more layered than this, but. The uh, IMDb synopsis, when an aristocratic woman known only as Madame Day sells a pair of earrings given to her by her husband in order to pay some debts, she sets off a chain reaction of financial and carnal consequences that can only end in despair. Look, I think it's hilarious. This movie, like with all these fucking hoity-toity bitches, is like set off by somebody fencing something. Like that's just hilarious <laughs> to me. Right. Just like basically going to like their, their equivalent of a fucking pawn shop like with a DVD player, she's like, here you go. Like, you know, um, but, but yeah, this movie, uh, this movie was less interesting to me, like significantly. So, um, but also it was more tragic. So yeah, it much so, more tragic. So, yeah. Like letter from an unknown woman is, is, uh, more interesting and layered. And then this movie, which don't get me wrong, letter from an unknown woman is tragic in its own right. But this movie is just a bit more tragic. I think he really hammers it home a bit because there's just a lot of shit going on in this movie. Right. I mean, I think what I said earlier was, was true. I think there, there are moments in, it's a Hollywood melodrama. There are moments in, in letter from an unknown woman where you're supposed to be happy for Joan Fontaine and you're supposed to be, you're supposed to feel uh, good. This is a nice thing that we're seeing on screen, right? This is this is beautiful. These are two people falling in love, and this is romance and whatever, whatever. And then the rug gets pulled out from under her, obviously. Um, and you know, all, the whole time, Ophel's just telling us, uh, "Hey, the rug is going to get pulled out from under this." By the way, um, earrings is not is not that. I think it's a lot more bleak and a lot more. Um, yeah, I mean, basically the the woman pawns her her uh, her jewels off, and boy, do we get! I mean, I don't even know how to describe the plot. Like it, it just it's it goes all over the place, and we end up um, we end up with, and I, I'm going to quote uh, David Thompson again here. Um, let's see, where is this quote? Um, 
God damn it. Um, all right. Well, I lost the quote. <laughs> you say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, while uh, Jacob loses the quote and continues to try to find it, I'll say, uh, yeah, for a French movie, it ain't bad. Um, oh, Jesus. You know, Here we go. I... <laughs> anyway, aside from that, uh, yeah, this movie, once again, beautifully directed. Like really well shot. Like some of the some of the party scenes, some of the scenes just it, it, he, you know, going back to what De Palma did in Mission Impossible with some very simple scenes. We've discussed on this podcast numerous times where we feel directors over direct something, uh, and that can happen. That's a trap you can fall into. It's a trap where it's like, no, I don't want to be simple for this shot, even though simple is what's called for. Like, just be simple. It's okay. With this, he chose not to be simple in a lot of shots where he he could have gone that way, but it works every time. Like just the right. opening, like I said at the beginning, uh, five to ten minutes of this movie when she's looking at her earrings and like kind of like, you know, toying with them, the over the shoulder shot, the way it moves, like we've already pointed out, you know, sometimes an active camera can be a bit jarring and like kind of pull you out. But it works in this movie. Uh, I just, I think that the man just instinctively knew what to do with the camera. And as we've discussed on here a lot as well, that's not always a given with movie directors. Right. So. As, as insane as that sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's true. I mean, the opening, you know, it gives us, communicates. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's kind of the classic Hitchcock stuff, which is. It, 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 the camera does so much and tells us so much about the characters and about the plot and about what's going to happen in this movie. And, you know, the camera seems to be revealing a universal truth, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to go through a little, little David Thompson quoting. Cause he says it more than, you know, maybe instead of listening to this episode, you guys should have just read the David Thompson entry <laughs> on Max Ophels. Um, but he says, uh, um, it is principally in the sense of remembrance, making up for unhappiness or fixing tragedy forever of time advancing as exquisitely as his tracking camera that Ophels is a tragic artist. Right. And this is, this is the great stuff right here. If film is essentially the capacity to show a moment of drama or a moment of change as it happens, then Ophels films are uniquely attuned to such transience. And I think that's, that's really good. That's really good right there. Ophuls is about these moments of these moments of transience that we know are not going to last, right? Changing time is the central consciousness and the subtle ways in which it changes the subjective experience of what happened at any moment is his most poignant realization. Admit time's ceaseless calm advance and you fall in love as a means to falling out of love. Right. Basically saying that that this camera is if the if the subject matter is love, the camera is telling us this is not going to last, that this is a this is a brief uh, uh, this is a brief moment in time. And it may be nice, but it's it's going to be gone soon. You know, the Renoir quote, why has Cupid wings if not to fly away again? Right. So it makes you think about the transitory nature of love and of good things happening to us. Um, oh, this is the quote that I was looking for. Listen to this. 
<laughs> but despite this transitory nature, man has consuming romantic passions. Far from cynical, Ophels concedes that a sense of transience makes love seem no less affecting when it actually comes. So think about that. Like, think about that, that it's, that we, we've got so many things going on here, right? We've got man, you know, human beings have such consuming romantic passions for each other, uh, for other things, right? We have passions for all kinds of stuff, you know? And part of the thing that makes this love affair, these love affairs that we have with things, people, dogs, you know, um, is that this is transient, that it's not going to last, right? It's not going to last forever. Uh, you Even if you fall in love and marry someone, that, that initial romance is not going to last forever. In fact, your marriage probably ain't going to last forever, right? And so... Ophel's cinema seems to be about that, about the transitory nature of human desire, right? And also, also about the tragic consequences of that desire, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I talked for a while. What do you think? Well, it's funny. Sometimes when you read David Thompson quotes with such passion, I feel like I'm a wee lad back in church. Because um, you'll say them with such passion, and then you'll follow up with like something like, "Yeah." And now we're like, kind of like, if like digging into it deeper, um, like a like a preacher elucidating the the good book. You know what? I've told you about using your fucking college words on here, and you just did it again. I don't know what the fuck elucidating is. Oh my bad. Um, <laughs> bringing light to. Okay, well, let me elucidate you on this fact. <laughs> um <laughs> hey, I got your elucidation right here, pal. Uh no, once again, very very spot on. I mean, I don't know. I guess some people are just born to be able to describe things so beautifully while also so correctly. Um because that this movie is is layered tragedy significantly, in my opinion, significantly more if you want to use like a Shakespearean way to describe it, uh, of a Shakespearean tragedy, than uh, a letter from an unknown woman, especially with the ending, the, the the culmination of everything going on. It's it's. I was surprised by how dark it got. I was. I did not expect it to be that bad uh, when when I got to the end of this movie. Which it's interesting you say Shakespeare because you know I think. Um... I think most, I mean, it's a, it's a grand part of the Western tradition, which is that, that love is treated in the realm of comedy as opposed to tragedy, you know? Um, yeah. Shakespeare, when he wrote about love, it was in a comedy, right? Um, he didn't, he didn't write a, a, I don't think a single tragedy about love. And so that's, it, it's, it's cutting against type that we get these kind of, um, you know, cause, cause you know, Lubitsch is the other one, you know, um, look at shop around the corner, right. One of the greatest, you know, love stories in, in cinema, you know, and that's a, that movie is a confection, you know, whereas this, these are, these are, these are real genuine, like you said, Shakespearean level tragedies of people get often getting what they want and it, it, it poisoning them, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty tough stuff, you know? Um, hey, you know, yeah, okay. the old saying, careful what you wish for. You know? That's true. You know, careful what you wish for. Um, Cause you may end in, up being in a duel in the middle of the woods. 
Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know, I know love stories are not your bag, but I thought you would be attracted to kind of the tragic nature of these. Um, and the filmmaking, the filmmaking can't be beat. I mean, this motherfucker. Um, we're going to have to watch Lola Montez at some point because Lola Montez is like, that was his last movie and he took his he took his ability and brought it to widescreen and brought it to color to tell the story of this tragic um, heroine, Lola Montez. I mean, it's like, it's like if Citizen Kane was made about a woman, honestly, like Lola Montez might be better than these two, but it's not a good entry point into the world of ovals. Um, so yeah, well, that's, I don't that, know. that sounds interesting at least. Um, it, but, is, um, it is. It is. Yeah. Lola Montez is a really, really interesting movie. Um, and also, come on, man. Me, the longtime listeners, we all know you're romantic at heart. Of course, you're going to pick these love stories. Yeah, but I mean, they, they fucking end pretty badly, you know? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lesson there, folks. Never fall in love and constantly be guarding yourself from others. <laughs> yes. Never let yourself enjoy a second of true eternal love because it will stab you in the back instantly. It's um, true. It's true, folks. I, uh, God, what else was I going to, oh yeah, last thing I was going to say, um, Madame Day, airings of Madame Day, um, great, uh, uh, great transfer on the Criterion channel, looks beautiful, letter from an unknown woman, uh, not so much, I don't know what Criterion is up to, but get the fucking rights to this and restore it, because it's not really available on any streaming services that are, that are that good, and the copy looks like absolute shit, so, like, let's do something about this, people. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, it was not the sound was a little rough too. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It, it looks and sounds rough. It, well, it looks and sounds like an old movie. You know what I mean? It looks like it like it looks like it's been around for you know seventy years or something. Whereas um, earrings looks fucking great. You know. Um, but yeah, that's but, Max Ophels. Um, I don't know if we'll do another movie on him or another episode on him because you're you're kind of uh, y- you know not like these kind of movies, but I think you would like Lola Montez. Maybe, maybe that's uh maybe that's for a future episode. I don't know. We'll see. Hey man, like I said, victim of circumstance, I'm not going to hold the movies um, accountable for, for, you know, where, I, where I'm at mentally when I'm trying to watch one of these. So uh, you know how it is. If you're stressed out or tired or whatever, trying to watch one of these movies, they cannot hit that right note. Um, but uh, I'm not opposed to do a watching more of his filmography for the very least for the way he directs movies. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I feel confident in saying that he is similar to like a Fritz Lang or something in that, like, what appears to be, you know, kind of simplistic or, or, you know, like, like, like Fritz Lang made a bunch of just kind of random noirs and stuff. And it's like, you know, Ophuls is kind of the same way. Like, it may appear to be like, oh, these are just kind of Hollywood genre movies, but I think there's a lot going on underneath the surface there, too. Um, and I, I would put, I would put Ophuls up there with anybody, honestly, as far as uh, directing ability and, you know, really, really, really having a, you know, what do you call it? Like a, like a, an aesthetic blueprint and also a thematic blueprint, you know, and really, really bearing that out in your cinema, you know, really, you know, similar to, you know, Orson Welles or uh, Renoir or Ozu, you know, really having a fucking you know, thematic and aesthetic point of view and really being able to get that across. 
And that that is that is um yeah, I, I would put him up against anybody when it comes to that. So yeah, explore him if you want to. Explore him if you want to. Any the other movies uh are kind of lighter, you know, La Ronde, Le Plaisir. Um, those are good too. And like I said, the film noirs, Reckless Moment is really good as a, you know, he he did make a couple of noirs. So um yeah, Max Ophels, folks. You heard it here uh first. He's he's actually kind of good, believe it or not. Yeah, and also guys, let us know what your experience with him is, what, what if you like these movies or not. Um and uh yeah, so aside from that, you guys know the drill. Rate and review wherever you listen. Spotify listeners, we're talking to you. Hit those five stars. Also, we hope you guys enjoyed our last episode with our guests because we had a great time talking about Bruce Lee and hope you guys enjoyed that as well. So. Oh yeah, definitely check out that episode if you haven't, uh, with Will Sloan. He was um yeah, he was really great. Also, our top 10 70s list doing some good numbers. Make sure you go check that out if you haven't. It's a really fun little, you know, building a list movie debate episode. One of our old school ones. So go check that out. Yeah, and we say this shit all the time, but uh, don't let it go in one ear and right out the other. If you like our podcast, you know, rate, review, you know, send us a DM on Twitter. I don't know. Send, you know, let's let's try to grow our audience a little bit here. Let's, uh, you know, if you like the podcast, you know, don't let don't let this go where in like I said, well in one ear and right out the other. Let's uh rate us, review us, you know, tell a friend about us. Um, you know, let's get some more people in the silver screen video family. Absolutely. And for those of you that have been messaging, uh, we appreciate it. Uh typically when, when it's nice, which most of them are, so thank you. Oh um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But anyway, uh yeah guys so hit us up on twitter if you want to message us yeah tell us what you think about the movies tell us what you've been watching all that good shit but uh do you have anything to say before we get out of here no let's wrap it up guys we will see you next week here at the silver screen video and thanks for stopping by